Well, this is one of my favorite times of year because we've gotten a glimpse of spring, a small glimpse. Today isn't really helping with this illustration. I wrote it when it was sunny. Uh, but <laughs> we're starting to get some glimpses of springtime. The days are starting to get a little bit longer. It doesn't get dark at four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> uh, there's There's been some sun. Some of the trees are starting to bloom. It's really really beautiful. And the best part, we've got political yard signs. Aren't these, aren't these our favorites, right? All around town, billboards and, and in people's yards, you start to go, oh, that's, yeah, they're into, they're into them. Okay. And, and so we've got our yard signs all over town. And then we've got our, you know, in the news, we've got our political primaries, you know, let's try to winnow down who is the person who's going to best represent our party in the general election, who's going to be the most electable. Uh, and and with what I've been thinking about is that that with our political process, that along along the way of, of picking whose sign you're going to put in your yard or, or who you're voting for in the primary, whatever it might be, um, we can we can begin to be identified by who we endorse, uh, whose team we are on. Our our identity actually can get wrapped up in in who it is that we follow and who we give our political allegiance to as a leader. Uh, and and it's easy to pick on politics because it's going on right now, but really this can happen in anything. I've noticed this uh, as I've gotten more involved in, in running the last couple of years. Um, there's there's these allegiances that, that get formed, like what shoes do you wear? What gear do you use? Or are you a road runner versus a trail runner? Are you, you know... Uh, what kind of training philosophy do you follow? Uh, and what kind of coaches you know, do you do you take stuff from? Who who are the runners that you admire and and kind of try to model yourself after? And there's whole websites and podcasts, really an entire industry that's based on these differences and these allegiances. Pick and you you could pick your own hobby, the thing that you're into. And if you're into something enough, you know the different streams or camps that are within that hobby. I'm sure like in knitting or something, you'd be like, I'm a yarn, this type of yarn person or whatever. I should have picked something I might have known a little bit more about, but I just pick your hobby, pick your sport, whatever it might be, and you can begin to identify these same tendencies that our own identity gets wrapped up in who we follow and what philosophy we follow in, in that hobby or in politics or in sports. This also happens within the church, within the community of those who follow Jesus. I'm just thinking this week about conversations I've had, people asking me questions. What, what authors do you read? Who, you know, which preachers do you listen to regularly? Who are the influences you've had in your life? What conferences do you go to? Essentially, the question is, what team are you on, Nate? Uh, what, what kind of camp do you belong to? What stream do you run in? And, and that's just this week. That's, those are conversations that I've had with different people throughout the week, people in our church, other pastors and leaders. Those kinds of questions 
But there's also bigger issues within the church that we know. There's denominations, there's affiliations, there's networks, there's coalitions, right? We have all these words for this. And then, of course, there's the big three, the Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, right? We, these are like centuries-old divisions and, and streams or camps that we identify ourselves with. And I was just asking myself this week, what's, what's at the heart of all of this? What's at the heart of all these things? I think it is our desire to define ourselves. It's to define ourselves. I think all of humanity, this isn't just a Christian thing, a non-Christian thing, all of humanity has this incredible desire or longing to define who we are, to assign our own identity, to be part of something or someone that embraces who we are individually, how we see ourselves, but also connects us to other people who, who are like we are or who see themselves in the same way that we do. And, and one of the main ways that we do this, that we give ourselves this identity, is to connect or align ourselves with movements or with leaders of these movements who will strengthen and empower and promote and protect that identity that we want to assign for ourselves. Ultimately, we want to show the superiority of our identity, our philosophy, the way we see ourselves, the way we see the world. And I think we could all say we love it when our us the way we define ourselves is shown to be more powerful than their them. And just, just examine your heart the day after an election and see how you feel, and you will see where your allegiances, right, where they lie. If, if your us wins, you feel good, you feel happy, and if your us loses, then, then there's a sense of sadness, and it, it goes the other way. When the them loses, you kind of can point at them a little bit and ha you lost you know you guys thought you were going to win and 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 the same could again it could go for sports it could go in hobbies all kinds of ways this plays plays out it turns out this is not a new issue this isn't just something we're we're dealing with in in our society and our culture today as we've seen in our series through the new testament letter that we call 1 Corinthians there's a church community in the city of Corinth, they are full of the same kinds of divisions that we see in our culture and in the church today. And the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. He's calling the followers of Jesus in Corinth, and he's calling, God is calling us today to something better than division. He's calling us into something better. And so in this passage that we're going to read today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, We're going to see a call to unity. We're going to see a hindrance or a roadblock to unity. And then we'll finish by looking to the way to unity. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll read verses 10 through 17. It's on page 952. If you're using one of the Bibles from the table in the back, it'll also be up on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's word. Let's pray once more. Father, thank you that you brought us here today. And and that you haven't just called us into a building at a specific time with specific people, but you've called us into unity with one another and with your church around the world and throughout history. I pray that today you would open our eyes and our hearts to see the magnitude of what it means to belong to you, Jesus, and what it means to belong to one another. I pray that you would show us that our identity is in you more than anything else, and that all other identities and and allegiances, that they would all bow their knee to Jesus today, that you would show us the idols in our hearts and that we would break them and that we would, we would follow you, Jesus, faithfully, that we would follow you alone. I pray, Father, that, that the gospel wouldn't be emptied of its power today through, through words, uh, but, but, Jesus, that, that your good news would be heard and believed today through the proclamation of your word. And would you help me to faithfully speak it? I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, the, the heart of this whole letter, we could say the, 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 the main emphasis of this letter, 1 Corinthians, is a call to unity. What, what Paul says here in verse 10, we could call it the thesis or the summary of everything that he's going to say in this entire letter. It's all going to tie back to this call to unity, to be without division, to be unified. And he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. In this call to unity, uh, Paul, he uses language, he uses concept, he uses themes that we're going to see again and again throughout this letter. So I want to take some time in this verse and, and walk through the different aspects of what he's calling us to as the people of Jesus. So first, what Paul does here is he begins with an appeal. He begins with an appeal. He could say... I command you, right? You must do this. I command you as your leader. But he doesn't begin that way. He begins with an appeal. He earnestly asks them. We could even translate this as Paul saying, I beg of you. I beseech you. And I think what we need to see here first is the heart of Paul as a leader and what the heart of leadership looks like in 
what it should look like in the church of Jesus. For Paul, he loves the church community in Corinth. There is a tenderness even in his words here. He's addressing big issues that, that must be dealt with, but he's doing it in a way that's tender. And I, I think we, it's safe to say that Paul is probably discouraged that there is division within the church community, but he isn't approaching this as a job. Maybe you've worked somewhere where, where the upper you know, leadership brings in somebody to kind of clean up what's going on. Like, you guys have just not been getting enough work done. There's, there's not a coherence in your work, and, and we just need to get things fixed here. But Paul isn't coming at, at this like a job, just a mess that he's got to clean up, that he's got to get at the factory line moving and, and pumping out disciples for Jesus. Um, so, so he's approaching it with love and tenderness, but at the same time, he is addressing what's going on within their church community. He doesn't just ignore this conflict, this division, and hope that it goes away. Uh, and, and I think this is one of the hardest things in leadership in any church. Uh, every leader deals with this, and it's not just leaders. It happens in our own homes. It happens in our workplaces where where dealing with conflict is one of the hardest parts of being an adult, I guess, right? Where, where you just, things are not the way they should be, and we have different ways we go about dealing with that. And, and probably if you're, if you're married, you, you have experienced the differences in the way each person who's married deals with conflict. Some people retreat, some people I won't say attack, but they go on the more uh, proactive way, right? Uh, and, and the same is true in any organization, in any, any leadership relationship where we just sometimes want to, to shrink back and just hope that the problem will fix itself. The principle that we see here and what Paul's doing is that... Um, if, if we believe the good news of Jesus, if we believe in who Jesus is and what he's done for us through his life, death, and resurrection, um, we, we should always speak the truth, okay? We should, we should always be um, compelled by the truth, but we should also be compelled by love. We speak the truth in love. This is the way of the gospel when it comes to dealing with anything, any conflict. We speak the truth in love. So it is true that our tone matters. Some people are convinced that if you just say what is true, that's enough. And other people are convinced that if you say things nicely, you may not necessarily have to say what is true. But we need to do both. We need to speak the truth in love. And this might require us to do things like instead of just reacting to something, we pray. We say, Jesus, how can I speak the truth in love? How can, I, how can I talk to this person about this conflict or this issue in our community in a loving way? Help me to be bold where I need to be bold to say what is true, but help me to do it in a way that is loving. You ever pray before you say something hard? Or do you pray when you know you should say something hard and you're not? Pray, ask Ask God to give you help to speak the truth in love. It also means that we have to care more about the other person than we care about what that person is doing, 
We have to care more about that person than about what that person is doing. And sometimes maybe the thing that we feel like we need to address is just an irritation or a problem that we have in ourselves. And if we truly care about that person, maybe we don't need to confront them about it. Maybe we need to confront ourselves about it. We need to care more about the other person than we care about what that person is doing. So, because the Corinthian church, there are people that Paul loves, Paul leads from that place of love. And this is the kind of servant leadership that we see Jesus displaying, the kind of servant leadership that Jesus called every leader to, to follow. And we see this throughout the New Testament in different ways. Now, who is Paul making his appeal to? Who is he asking this? He says he addresses this to his brothers and sisters. In the English Standard Version, uh, it usually just says brothers, but the Greek word is inclusive of men and women, and certainly we know later in this letter that Paul is addressing both men and women. So, so anytime you see brothers in, in this translation, you can always just assume that it means brothers and sisters. So, so this, this language that Paul uses here, it, it is to call us to remember that the church is a family. The church is a family. And it's not a group of families that kind of, you know, are doing stuff together, but the church is a single family. And so that relationship as a family, it's the basis, it's the foundation for this call to unity that Paul is giving us. It's, it's not about what works best. Unity is not just about what works best, uh, what looks best from the outside, or what Paul as a leader or what any leader prefers. Unity, unity in Christ, unity in Jesus together, that's our identity. That's who we are in Jesus. We belong to him. We belong to his family, his body, and so he is the one who defines the way things should be. If if Christ is present in us, uh, we are his people, right? If he is one, if Christ is not divided, then, then we are too, his people. We were not divided because we belong to him. Now, we all know, uh, any of us who belong to a family, we know that being part of a family doesn't automatically mean that we all get along right? We know, we know this. It can't just be me. You, you know that belonging to a family doesn't just mean everything is going to be fine. Everything's going to be easy. But the, the truth is that we are still family. We are still family. And we don't get to choose who, who is part of our family as much as we would love to be able to have like a draft. You know, like, okay, I like them. Yeah, let's, let's pick them. That, this is like a nice operating family. But we don't get to do that. And that relationship with our family is unbreakable even when we want to break it. We're part of a family in Jesus. We belong to him and we belong to one another. Paul continues this call to unity by making his appeal in the name of the Lord Jesus. So he does invoke or, or make an appeal to authority, but it's not to his own authority, it's to the authority of Jesus. He says, it's, 
I'm doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the master. He's the ruler here. He's the one who has authority over us. So Paul's not demanding his own way. He's not asking for absolute loyalty and saying, I'm the one who brought you the gospel. I'm the one who planted this church. I'm the one who's in charge of you. Paul doesn't do any of that. He doesn't ever pull rank. Any authority that Paul has, that any leader in the church has, comes from Jesus. Doesn't come from our own charisma. Doesn't come from our own talent. It doesn't come from our own ability to get people to do stuff. Any authority that any leader in the church has comes from Jesus. And Paul makes his appeal to the authority of Jesus. Now Paul begins to talk about what this unity looks like in the church. He says that all of you agree and that there be no divisions. Now we need to take a moment to just look look at what Paul is actually saying here because I think it's so helpful for us to see and it's it's really difficult to define in some ways. First in this, in this, there's so many divisions and the church is fractured in many ways. Paul doesn't take a side here. Paul doesn't pick a side. His, his one desire, his main desire is for harmony within the church, for unity within the church. He's not looking for a victory for himself. He's not looking to repair his own reputation. He says, I want harmony. I want unity. He's not looking for a personal victory. He's not looking to promote one of these divisive groups within the church and say, do what they are doing because they're the ones who are right. Paul doesn't pick a side. Craig Blomberg, he is a New Testament scholar. He says, Paul isn't looking for Christian cloning, which is helpful. Uh, Instead, he's calling them to cooperation. He's calling them to mutual concern for one another. He's calling them to consideration of the diversity that exists within their community for self-sacrificial love, for edification and encouragement. That all of you agree that there be no divisions. Real Christian unity isn't it's not about finding the right way to do things and then making everyone conform to that standard. Okay? It's not about, if you want to use a musical metaphor, it's not about everyone singing the same note at the same time. Instead, the picture that Paul is giving us here is one of harmony. So, so I don't know how to read music. I like to sing, uh, but I don't know how to read music. But people who can read music can look at a vocal uh, score is that the right way to say it? And they can they can see the parts that they can sing that are in alignment with the melody, and so that that all these different voices can sing off the same sheet of music, but they're not singing the same notes. And what happens when they sing like that? It's beautiful, isn't it? Isn't it incredible? Is there something more beautiful sounding than, than voices without any instrumentation singing harmony? It's in, it can just move you incredibly. And it would not have the same effect if it was just four voices singing the same exact note. 
That's the picture that Paul is giving us. Different parts following the same music. And and this is how Paul concludes verse 10 by calling us to this kind of harmonious unity where he says we are united in the same mind and the same judgment. And, and again, just reading it straight, it can, it can kind of sound like we're being called into some kind of cloning where we all think and do exactly the same things that we're kind of called to be some drone that's being operated from far away by some program or some algorithm. But, but I think it really helps us to see the wording that Paul is using here. When he calls the church to be united in verse 10, The Greek word that he uses is a surgical term for resetting a broken bone. So, so I've, I've never broken a bone, uh, but, but, but if you break a bone, it needs to be reset. And if you don't reset the bone, there's, there's going to be continual pain and there's going to be a dysfunction in the way that your body works forever after that, until that brokenness is reset. And that's the word that Paul uses here, the resetting of a broken bone, to put things back the way that they are supposed to be, to do things in the order or the design that they were made. This is the kind of unity that Paul is talking about, the kind of unity that he's calling us to live according to the way that God has made you, a new creation in Christ Jesus, where we have the same kind of understanding, the same convictions, the same mission, the same cause, where we are in alignment together. Stephen Um, who's a pastor, says that Paul is calling them to adjust their opinions and worldviews to be in line with the gospel that they have received. The upside-down content of the gospel is supposed to shape their mental framework, their mind, and their worldview. And out of that mental framework, they are to arrive at judgments and opinions that are in line with the truth of the gospel. To put it more simply, Mark Taylor says that we are to take up a perspective that is conditioned by the cross. This is the appeal that Paul is making. Have your lives the way you think and look at everything, the perspective that is conditioned, shaped, formed by the cross, by the gospel of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's Paul's appeal. That's his call to unity. And next, Paul begins to talk about a hindrance to this unity. And this is, this is where we see why Paul is making this appeal, why he's really writing this letter in the first place. He's gotten some letters from the church in Corinth in the past. He's been corresponding with people within the church. He's written them a letter we know uh, before this. We don't have that letter recorded historically, but we know that he's written a letter to them once before. So he knows there's tension going on within the church community, but now we see that he's learned, he's gotten some new information. In verse 11, he says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. So a woman named Chloe, who was probably from the city of Corinth, uh, had sent some of her uh, slaves or business associates to Paul in the city of Ephesus to let him know, this is how bad things have gotten. They, she has sent word through 
through her associates, uh, this is what's going on. It's not just quarreling. The English translation is, is a little bit too weak there to convey the depth of division and strife that's going on in the church community. There is bitter conflict that has been going on and is getting worse and threatening to fracture the church in Corinth. And here's the problem. What I mean is, he says in verse 12, is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, each of these names, if we've been been involved in, in, if you've been reading the Bible, if you've been following Jesus, these are familiar names to us. Paul obviously has written this letter. He's the one who planted the church in Corinth. Apollos was another early church leader who is talked about in Acts chapter 18 and 19. He's mentioned numerous times in 1 Corinthians, so we'll learn more about him as we go along. Uh, At some point, he went to Corinth and was involved in leading the church there, instructing them, teaching them. So he's already been there after, uh, before this letter was written. Uh, We know Cephas is Peter, the apostle Peter. He may have visited the city at some point. Uh, We're not We're not positive, but it's likely that he did visit the city of Corinth before this letter was written. And of course, Jesus, okay? Jesus is the whole reason uh, that we're here, that this letter's written, that the church in Corinth exists. And these are the factions that Paul is saying exist. Some of you are saying, each of you is saying, that, that I belong to one of these factions or one of these parties. Now, Now, if you just zoom out a little bit, and think, is there any theological difference between what Jesus taught, what, what Paul teaches, what Apollos taught, what Peter taught? It's not really any theological differences. There's, there's some uh, friction like between Paul and Peter. We saw that in the book of Galatians. But, but essentially, they believe the same things. They teach the same things. They work together. They talk about each other as partners. Uh, they're, there's a harmony between them as leaders. So, so how is it that, that these leaders who are in alignment with one another, teaching the same things, instructing the same way to the same people, how is it that it's become so fractured that people are saying, I belong to this one or I belong to that one, when, when really the message is the same. There's no division between Peter, Paul, Apollos following Jesus. They weren't planting separate churches with separate missions. They weren't recruiting followers to their movement. Now, the problem here is not with Paul or Peter or Apollos or Jesus. The problem is Corinth itself. The, the culture of Corinth, the city, They highly valued methods of public speaking and philosophy and rhetoric and and to the point that the entire city, the whole region was divided, sharply divided uh, because of the way, because of who they aligned themselves with. And this was common in the Greco-Roman culture of the time, but Corinth was apparently a city that was really well known for its commitment to following different leaders and different philosophies and different schools of thought. During this time, there was a Greek historian and philosopher named Dio Chrysostom, and he, uh, he gives this description of Corinth. And this is not from a Christian perspective or anything. He's just a historian who's saying, this is what happened when I went to the city 
of Corinth around the same time as this was written. Uh, That was the time, too, when one could hear crowds of wretched sophists, and the sophists, we're going to learn about them more in the future, um, just a a school of philosophy and appreciation for public speaking and rhetoric. One could hear the crowds of wretched sophists around Poseidon's temple shouting and reviling one another, their disciples, as they were called, fighting with one another. Many Many writers reading aloud their stupid works, Many poets reciting their poems while others applauded them, and peddlers, not a few, peddling whatever they happen to have. You get like this idea of a pretty chaotic scene, and I don't think uh, Dio here is helping. He's like, these writers just reading the stupid things they've written. He's like, not quite an outside observer there. Uh, And it's just, people are reading, people are reciting their poems, and people are selling things. And it's just a picture of a sharply divided culture. Now, rather than being distinct from the culture around them, the church community in Corinth brought this same mindset into the family of Jesus. They have begun to rally themselves, to align themselves with individual leaders whom they believe are superior to the other leaders. They are essentially picking a team I'm, I'm aligning myself with so-and-so. Even though those leaders weren't trying to have this happen. They weren't, they weren't trying to make this happen. Brian Rosner, he says, such a personality-focused approach to leadership with its emphasis on the high rank of the leader and the status conferred on the follower betrays the influence of Corinthian society. The Corinthians made too much of specific leaders and specific styles of leadership. And this is why, just a little side note here, when when Paul says some people are saying, I follow Christ or I belong to Christ, it doesn't sound that bad, right? We would think, well, uh, that seems like a good thing. I think we should follow Jesus. But, But the problem with this particular camp is that they viewed themselves as superior to everyone else. And they were essentially saying, we don't need any leaders, we just follow Christ. And you can make your own modern correlations to people who are super spiritual, and they don't think they need any leadership or any church community, and they can just kind of do their own thing. I belong to Christ. And we'll talk some more about that in the coming weeks, but that's just a little side note. Because really, (laughs) we're no different in the church today as, as what Paul is pointing out in the church here in Corinth. And just, I was doing a lot of reflecting this week that, that one of the most discouraging and difficult aspects of being a leader in the church is how easy it is to connect yourself to other influential leaders and to kind of uh, theological or methodological camps and streams like we're charismatic or we're reformed or whatever, whatever the camp or stream might be, that there's a lot of name dropping that begins can begin to occur, in at least in your own heart, maybe, or in the conversations that you have. And, and I think this has been a tendency that I have struggled with uh, and sometimes been really unaware of in my own life, that I was blind to this in many ways. Uh, I can't tell you how many books that I have bought, period, uh, but I can't tell you how many books that I have bought or haven't bought based on the endorsements on the back. Do you ever do this? You look at a book and you're like, well, so-and-so says it's a good book, or so-and-so says it's a good book, (laughs) so I'm not going to get it. 
Right? You've ever done this where you just evaluate the content, well, not even the content, just who's on the cover, who says it's good or it's not good. You read a review online, oh, I'm definitely not going to read that because this person I trust says it's not, it's not good, it's not okay. Uh, I've decided on which conferences to go to based on who's speaking at those conferences. Not the theme of the conference, not the particular season I'm going through in my own life or where our church is at, just who's speaking at that conference. Okay, I like them, I want to go. And I just was thinking about Acts 29, uh, the church planting network that we're a part of. I think not just individually, but even as a network, our, our network has struggled with this, this particular issue of being aligned with personalities and being aligned with certain leaders. And, and now that I've been in ministry of some form for now 20 years, I, can, I cannot tell you how many times I have been let down by those personalities and by those leaders whether there are people I know personally or people that I've been influenced by, I've read a book by, many of them have disqualified themselves from ministry for various reasons. Um, many of them have burned out. Many of them have built a platform only to tear it down. Many of them have started to believe their own press and have become arrogant and begun to lead with a heavy hand. One pastor that I used to follow closely, that uh, someone I spent some time with, books, uh, books, multiple books that I read by this individual, when he was confronted by other leaders in his own church about his arrogant and verbally abusive behavior, he allegedly said, I am the brand. No leader in the church of Jesus should ever say, I am the brand. Just a couple of weeks ago, the CEO of Acts 29 Global, our network, was removed from his position by the board for heavy-handed, spiritually abusive leadership in his own church and within the Acts 29 Global staff. Those are things that have affected me and have affected us in some ways as a church, and you can probably come up with your own list, but the, the main point is that there will be more disappointments. When we, when we follow leaders and when we're drawn to certain personalities, we're going to be let down by them. And the same is true of me. If you align yourself to my personality and my leadership ability, if you're not disappointed yet, you will be, I guarantee it. The Apostle Paul knew this. He saw the division. He saw the the roots of this division aligning themselves with certain personalities. And he knew where it was going to lead the church in Corinth to a splintering, a fracturing of this church body and really to its destruction. And so he calls them back. He calls them back by asking them three questions. And you can think of these questions, ask them of yourself. Is, verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul, or insert the name of the leader that you follow, were they crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul or the leader that you've got in mind? And the answer to all three questions is, of course, no. No. 
it is, it is crazy to give our loyalty and our devotion to individual leaders and teachers in the church because there's only one Savior. There is only one Savior. There's only one person who gave their lives for us to free us from sin, to break the bondage of sin. Only one man did that, and it was Jesus. And Paul says, I'm not the one who was crucified. I'm not the one who is the basis for your salvation. And the same is true. Any leader, if any, well, of course, no one's going to say this outright, but if any leader has behavior that makes you feel like my righteousness, my standing with God is in danger because of my relationship to this leader, that's an unhealthy relationship. When we're baptized, if you've been baptized, when you go under the water, we say you've been baptized in the name of the person who led you to Christ? No. The person who's dunking you underwater? No. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You were baptized in the name of the one who saved you, not the one who is helping you display the evidence of the salvation that you've received. That's what baptism is, and it's it's an expression of of our salvation, not the person that we're following on earth. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a declaration of, now I'm part of this particular local church, or I'm going to follow this leader without question for the rest of my life. It's a declaration. Baptism is a declaration. I have entered the kingdom of God through the person and work of Jesus and no one else. So the person who does the baptizing doesn't really matter at all. The man who baptized me was a pastor who was unfaithful to his wife and ran off with a person in the church. This was after I was baptized. And I've never talked to him again. My baptism isn't dependent on him. My salvation isn't dependent on him. It grieves me that that happened but my salvation is secure in Christ, not in the performance of any individual leader. People who got baptized by Billy Graham, they don't have a special standing with God because of the stature of the leader, because of their reputation. And this is precisely what Paul is saying in verses 14 and 15. I'm so glad that I didn't baptize a bunch of you because apparently you've gotten to the point where you're you're dividing yourselves up by who baptized who and you've created these teams. Becoming enamored with teachers and leaders in the church is a dangerous temptation for us as we follow Jesus. And as we've seen here in Corinth, it's a hindrance, it's a roadblock to unity within the church. And finally, what we see here in this passage is the way to unity. And really from from verse 17 all the way through the end of chapter 4, this is the way to unity, but, but verse 17 is kind of the introduction to that, the first taste. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power." 
And this is a good point for us here. Paul is saying, what's my mission? What's my calling? It's not to baptize people. It's not to create a team for myself. My mission, my calling was to preach the gospel. Our calling, our mission is not to create followers of us. It's not to create members of the town church. Our mission, our calling is to delight in Jesus, to declare and display the good news of Jesus, and then to make disciples who do that, who delight themselves in Jesus, and who display the gospel in their lives, and who talk about Jesus, who declare him to others. And when we turn that mission and that calling into some kind of personality cult, into something impressive and admirable, we remove the very thing that makes it distinct, that makes it Jesus-y. We've taken that away. The gospel of Jesus isn't impressive. The cross isn't pretty. And the way of Jesus isn't easy and it won't make you famous. But it is, Paul says, the power of God. And if, if you want to live in and operate from that place of authentic kingdom of God, gospel power, we have to give up, we have to surrender our desire to be impressive and to build our own identity. We have to embrace a mission, a life of saying, as John the Baptist did, he must increase and I must what? Decrease. He must be raised up. I must be lessened. Right? He must increase. I must decrease. In the film Miracle, which is about the U.S. hockey team, I don't know anything about hockey, but I love this movie. Uh, college hockey coach Herb Brooks, he's hired to uh, be the coach for the, the U.S. men's hockey team for the 1980 Olympics. And, and Brooks, he was kind of a different coach philosophically for the U.S., and he brought this really unique and kind of in-your-face, brash style uh, to, to the coaching and to the team. And so he... He scrapped the whole roster of everyone who had played before, and he just started building this team of hot-headed, young college all-stars from all over the country, many of whom had already formed rivalries with one another in college by playing against each other. And, and after a fight between some of the players in one of the early practices, he says, all right, here's what we need to do. I want you to introduce yourself, tell me where you're from, and who you play for, and you, all the players stand up. I'm from St. Paul, Minnesota, and I play for the University of Minnesota. I'm from Charlestown, Massachusetts. I play for, the, for Boston University. I'm from North Dakota. I'm from Wisconsin. I play for this college or this team. And after they're humiliated in an early exhibition match, Coach Brooks, he forces the team to stay on the ice after the game and, and just to run drills back and forth on the ice. And this is like a 10-minute scene in the movie. I mean, they just go back and forth, back and forth, blowing the whistle, get back on the line, get back on the line. Hours, hours and hours. And after they're just utterly exhausted, he says, line up. And he's about to blow the whistle, and suddenly one of the players yells his name, Mike Aruzioni, Winthrop, Massachusetts. And Coach Brooks says, who do you play for? 
I play for the United States of America. Earlier in the movie, he had said, it's not, a, it's not about the name on the back of your jersey. It's about the name on the front of your jersey. And this, this moment in the movie is such a, such a great movie moment. I'm sure it had nothing to do with reality, <laughs> but it's just a really stirring moment because it symbolizes the kind of teamwork, the kind of unity that it was going to take to beat the much more talented and experienced Russian hockey team. But in the 1980 Olympics in Lake Placid, New York, a miracle happened. The Team USA beat Russia and they went on to win the gold medal. No one expected them to. No one could have believed it. The U.S. hockey team needed Coach Brooks to show them the way to unity. And in the same way as we follow Jesus, we need to be shown the way to unity. In a sense, we need to be called back again and again to the name on the front of our jerseys not the name on the back. The way to unity in Jesus is to focus on Jesus. Who is Jesus? What has he done for us? What's the kind of life that he's calling us into? And as he increases, as we decrease, we will live and walk in the power of true gospel unity. And we will be an incredibly effective display of the good news of Jesus. So the call for us today is to walk together as a church family in the way of Jesus and to show the world what real power looks like, what real true identity that's been given to us, not earned for ourselves. And that's, that's why I'm so excited about this series for us of just learning how to do this together, learning how to live and walk together in the way of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we have much work to do in our hearts, even just in, even just in asking these questions. Who, who are the people that I've aligned myself with? Who are the people that I put my hope in? Who are the people I'm depending on to lead me? I pray that you would show each one of us the ways uh, that we have, we have put down following you, Jesus, and, and we've tried to find our identity in, in another leader, in another shepherd. And we thank you for the leaders you have put in our lives who do lead in the way of Jesus, but would we not put our hope in them, but in the one they're leading us to? I pray that you would help me be that kind of a pastor that I wouldn't be someone to call people to me, but to you. I pray for Acts 29, just as, as I've shared a little bit about what's going on there, that you would help our churches to be places of servant leadership and humility, that we could lead in the way of Jesus, and that our churches, the churches that we plant would replicate that not arrogance, not personalities, but Jesus. Help us to be faithful in that, that we could be the kind of church that makes disciples who are united in Jesus and who follow you faithfully, and that we could be that ourselves. We need your grace to do this. We need the power of the gospel in us. 
Help us surrender our lives and that you would increase as we decrease, Lord Jesus. We ask it in your beautiful name. Amen.